Okay, hello. Good morning, everyone. Let me get myself organized. Turn to your neighbor and say, what a nice day. How great is that? All right, fantastic. I am now ready. Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to those of you mothers that are here. God bless you guys and thank you so much. And also, for those of you that are, not, that are not yet mothers, that would like to be mothers, we're praying for you. We love you. We want to support you. Certainly, we know this can be a difficult day. Those of you that have lost moms, praying for you guys as well. Uh, a difficult day as well. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're returning to the book of Acts. We, we took a, a break, if you will, last week as, uh, you know, my, my family... Um, we grieved the loss of our father-in-law, my father-in-law, my wife's father, uh, and Josh uh, Barber, who led us today in worship, was gracious enough to um, take us through uh, one of the key accounts of the life of Elisha, Elijah, and uh, thank you, Josh. We're grateful for that. Um, but today we're going to return back to Acts. We've been making our way verse by verse through the book, and I'll remind you that two weeks ago, when we were in Acts, we were introduced to a, a conflict a conflict that developed in the church. Here is a church that is run by the apostles themselves, and they have difficulties, and you know people rub one another the wrong way, and how do you work through those types of things? And so we spent our time considering that. You recall it was between the Hebrew Jews, the Jewish Jews, and the Greek Jews, the Hellenists, the, as they are referred to. And there was a perception that one group was being uh, favored over the other group, and this isn't right, and this isn't fair. Somebody needs to do something about it. And they brought the matter to the apostles. I'm reminding you, if you were with us, they brought the matter to the apostles, and the apostles agreed. You're right. This is something that needs to be dealt with, and this is something that needs to be addressed. But it is not something that we as the apostles, those that God has raised up to teach the church, it's not something that we should distract ourselves with, not something that we should be giving ourselves and our time to. We're going to continue to study the word and to be praying, to seek the Lord's will. And they, at the same time, they raised up some, some that would address this particular issue. And you recall that the, the folks that they raised up were those that are referred to as deacons. And we have, if you will, even though they're not officially called this, they are the first deacons in the church. Seven men that were raised up whose job it would be to administer the distribution of food fairly, equitably to the widows of that um, particular congregation. Now, I bring all this up. Some of you are like, yeah, we were here. We know. You know what I mean? Like, like, we can go back and listen to the tape if we need to. But I bring it all up because one of those men that was the, of those seven deacons was a fellow by the name of Stephen. And Stephen is going to become the central figure in our study for today. And so here is this man, Stephen, who his job essentially was to wait on tables, to serve tables, to make sure that everybody, just sort of a, a basic job um, that needed to get done, he did, and we're going to see him today as sort of the central figure in our study. Sound fair? Did I pray yet? All right, well, if I did, we'll pray again. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for uh, you to come and you to speak uh, to our hearts. Lord, even though we're separated by this material by a couple thousand years, Lord, we do know that your word is alive, it's living, it's active. And it can dig down deep into areas that uh, we needed to dig down into. And Lord, we've, many of us here, if not all of us here, have discovered, 
Lord, that you know how to speak into the deep areas of our lives that potentially might be a very different area from somebody else in the room, but your Holy Spirit knows how to do what he needs to do. And so we pray that you would do that this morning, that you'd minister to each one of us in the unique place that we're at this morning through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, if you look at Acts chapter 6, verse 5, you'll see they chose seven men. One of those men there, you see his name there in the second line, or so, depending on your Bible, is that fellow by the name of Stephen. Let's read further what went on with this man. Starting in verse 8, it says, Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Another name for great wonders and signs? Miracles. All right. Uh, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they began to dispute with, to argue, to challenge Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit, notice it's capitalized, by which he was speaking, with which he was speaking. Then secretly, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon Stephen and they seized him and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses has delivered to us. And gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that it was his face was like the face of an angel. One second, please. So Luke begins... <clears throat> Luke begins this morning by pointing out the way in which this Stephen, this fella, is, was being used by the Lord in some pretty amazing ways. Signs, wonders, he was being used by the Lord to perform the miraculous. We see that there in verse 8. Now Stephen is the first person that we're introduced to in the book of Acts, besides the apostles. He's the first person that we're introduced to that God is using to do the miraculous through. And we will see that as we continue to make our way through the book of Acts, it's not just the apostles and the prophets that God is using to perform these great signs and wonders accompanying the word as it goes forth. He's also using individuals outside of the grouping of the apostles. And in this case, we have this particular fellow, Stephen. This is quite a jump from ministry. He was the guy in our church who's vacuuming. He's the guy in our church who is cleaning the bathrooms. He's the guy in our church, the gal in our church that is in the Sunday school area or leading the prayer ministry or something like that. And now the Lord is saying, Stephen, I want to take you from that place and I want to put you into a place where you're preaching the gospel and my Holy Spirit is working through you in such, a ways, in such ways as to perform the miraculous as well. Would you say that's quite a jump in ministry to go from the one to the other? Stephen faithfully served the Lord in whatever opportunity was placed before him. Stephen, I need you to vacuum the carpets around the building. You got it, Lord. And I'm going to do it great. I'm not going to skip a spot. I'm not going to see a spot and say that's good enough because we all know that dirt hides there. And Stephen says, faithfully, I will do what you call me to do. Stephen, I need you to preach a gospel. You got it, Lord. Stephen, I need to work through you in the miraculous. Absolutely. Whatever he was called to do, Stephen faithfully made himself available for God to do. He was faithful in those things, in each of those things. 
Zechariah chapter 4, you're probably familiar with it once I say it uh, to you. It says, for whoever has despised the day of small things will rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. It speaks there about this idea of despising the day of small things. We have a tendency to do that, don't we? We have a tendency of looking at certain things and say, oh, I don't really want to invest much of my energy into this. This is just a small thing. And then we see other things. We're like, oh, God, please pray for me. Uh, we tell our friends to pray for us because this is a big thing. Stephen didn't despise the day of small things. Whatever it was that God called him to do, he faithfully sought to do. We say things to ourselves like, you know, I was created for so much more than this. I can do so much more than this. I am so much more than this. And we neglect or we despise the small things. We need to not do such thing. The way of the Lord, the way that God works through his servants is to first, and that's what we all are. I'm not just talking about people that are preachers or, or something like that. Every one of us that are a follower of Christ are servants of Christ. And the way that we establish ourselves as servants of Christ is first in the smaller things. That's where God teaches us what it truly means to be a servant and how to minister in such a way that he's the one that is honored and not you and I are the ones that are honored. You see those bathrooms? Yeah, I was in there all morning. I was cleaning those bathrooms. I'm pretty good, right? Yeah, you're something. You know, that's what we, we want to do that. That's not a true servant of the Lord. It's about pointing people to Christ. And what the scripture teaches is that the greater, or excuse me, the reward for faithfulness is greater responsibility. It's greater opportunities in order to minister for the Lord. And we learn in the trenches how to minister in, so to speak, the great places so that the Lord is honored in both of those particular places. Stephen faithfully fulfilled his ministry. And it's as if the Lord pulled him aside and says, Stephen, you know what? You're a man that I can use. You're a fellow that I can trust. I have a responsibility for you that I need you to do. And he called him to preach and he called him uh, to work through him in the miraculous in that particular way. Now, I think a lot of us here, we sincerely desire that God would do great things through us. We want to reach people for, for Christ. Right? We want to advance God's kingdom. We want to see the youth group that we're leading you know, thrive so that kids are really growing in the Lord and getting their lives, you know, in a, setting them on a path to really walk with the Lord all the days of their lives. And we really want to see those things. We need to minister faithfully where God has called us to be. So if you are a nursery worker, and a lot of you are, or a Sunday school worker, I want to encourage you to be faithful in what it is that God called you to do. Go to bed early the night before. Wake up with tons of energy so that you can minister to those babies unlike anybody has ever ministered to those babies. If you are cleaning bathrooms, clean those bathrooms like Jesus is going to be the next guy into those particular bathrooms. So imagine if Jesus walked into the bathroom and came out of there. You smell that place? That's fantastic. You know, and he came out of there like, man, that bathroom is sparkling. If you were the guy that cleaned it, the gal that cleaned it, you'd be like, all right, the Lord is pleased. Clean those bathrooms in such a way that he would be pleased. If you're a Sunday school teacher, a small group teacher, youth group leader, or something like that, prepare those studies like you're preparing to preach before thousands. Be faithful in the little things. God blesses that. He sees that. If I could recommend a resource, every now and again I like to recommend one. 
I don't want to recommend one every week because you'd be like, I ain't read any of them. You give me too many. But, you know, every couple of months or so, here's a good one that I would recommend you read. And if you've read it, I'd encourage you to go back and read it again. It's Warren Wearsby's book. It's called On Being a Servant of God. I think it's a value. I think every one of us would benefit from taking some time and reading through it. All right? We have some copies available here. If you're dying to have it today, we have some copies. I'll give it to you if you really want it. Um, but you can go buy one uh, as well for yourself. On Being a Servant of God by Warren Wearsby. So with that, Stephen, he was a faithful servant. He organized, he helped figure out the best way to distribute food uh, to the widows that we saw there. God said, Stephen, I have a different task that I need for you now. And he brought him out so that he might have the opportunity to preach the gospel. We see in verse 9, it says, Then then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they began to dispute with Stephen. Stephen standing somewhere in a public setting, preaching the gospel, and all of a sudden this sort of group comes walking in, or a bunch of groups come walking in, and somebody says, yeah, I don't agree. Well, well don't you agree with him? And then they begin to have this debate of sorts. They begin to dispute with him. Notice it says, but they could not, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. That speaks of this idea that there's a, a dialogue or a debate in this public setting that is going back and forth. And they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen is speaking. That's not because Stephen was brilliant. It's because God was working through him. And his heart was in such a place. Stephen's not screaming at him. He's not yelling at him. He's not trying to belittle him. He's not trying to prove him wrong so that they walk out of there, you know, with their tail between their legs or something like that. He's communicating in love the truth of God's word, and they could not withstand that. The scripture tells us here. Now, the opposition that came against him, notice it says in verse 9 that it was groups that came from these various synagogues. It names five or six different synagogues. The synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, that would be former Roman slaves that were gathering together in a local synagogue. Now, a synagogue, the Jews, maybe you don't know this, maybe you do. If you do, just hang with me for a moment. Uh, the Jews had the temple. That was the place they would go. The sacrifices would be offering. The feasts would be celebrated, those sorts of things. And, then in, and that was in one place. That was in Jerusalem. And then scattered throughout Israel or scattered throughout communities all around the world, if there were at least 10 males in that particular community, they were required by custom to raise up a synagogue, a meeting place, a gathering place. And the synagogue was the place where they would go to be taught. So they would go to the temple for their sacrifices, for song, worship, those kinds of things. They would go to the synagogue where they might sing a song or so, but there they would go to be taught. And in every one of these communities, whether it was Cilicia or Caesarea or Asia or whatever it might be, there would be a synagogue in that community. That's what our friend Luke is referencing when he points out the, the, the handful that we have there. One of those synagogues, notice he says, was the synagogue of uh, Cilicia. Interest, or excuse me, Cyrenia um, there. Uh, that would be northern Africa. Today we call that Libya. Alexandria would be what we today call Egypt. So these are people that are coming from all over the world and have either remained there in Jerusalem or have resettled there in Jerusalem. Cilicia is southern Turkey. 
Asia, we today know it as Northern and Central Turkey, or Asia Minor. So again, people that are coming from all over the world there, and they are disputing with Stephen. One of those men, or uh, one of those locations that they were from was Cilicia. The capital of Cilicia was, from, was Tarsus. Have you heard that term before? Who's from Tarsus? Saul. Saul, who would go on to become Paul, was probably the rabbi of this particular synagogue, which means he's likely, and we, we know it from when we read a little bit further, Saul is there, and he's disputing with Stephen. Now, you read, Saul wrote about half of our New Testament. Saul was brilliant, a brilliant individual. People that read his works, even if they're not Christians, will read his works and say, man, this guy's mind is brilliant the way it operates and things like that, which means this brilliant man is speaking to Stephen, who last week was the guy in charge of vacuuming the carpets, and he cannot withstand the wisdom and the spirit from which our friend uh, Stephen is speaking. And again, it's because the Holy Spirit was empowering and enabling Stephen. Paul is in this gathering, or Saul, as he was known at that particular time, was in this gathering. Now, they can't defeat him with an argument. And so notice what it goes on to say. It says, they secretly, this is verse 11, instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. If you look at verse 13 for a moment, it says they, they brought in false witnesses as well. So they're unable to uh, defeat him, so to speak, in an argument. And so they decide to cheat a little. They decide to lie about him. They decide to stir up the crowd, instigate the crowd. They bring in these false witnesses here. Because they can't. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people. And the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him, and they brought him before the council. And I remember the council is what we call the Sanhedrin, high court of the, of the Jewish land. It would be our supreme court of the day. They set up false witnesses. They said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy this place and change the customs of Moses that he has delivered to us. Now, you recall, maybe, if you were with us, back in chapter 5, when these same religious leaders came against Peter and John and the apostles, that they decided to arrest Peter and John and the apostles, but to do so, anybody remember? Secretly, lest the crowd be stirred up. So in that instance, the crowd was with the apostles. They were supportive of the apostles, and the leaders, the religious leaders, had to do it secretly, lest the whole crowd get riled up and come against them. Here now, they stir up the crowd. They're able to sway the crowd. They're able to get the crowd on their particular side so that they can do whatever it is they're going to want to do to Stephen as the story moves along here. Public opinion. We need to be careful about courting public opinion. Because public opinion is very, very fickle. And today it's with you, and tomorrow it is against you. And if you build your life trying to have the support of public opinion, and what am I supposed to believe today, and what's the appropriate cultural thing that is accepted today where everyone is going to like me, and nobody is going to be against me, and they're not going to throw me off of social media or whatever, tell me what to believe today, and I'll believe it. If you live your life in that particular way, you'll always be behind the eight ball, so to speak. You'll always be running to try to catch up 
to wherever it is that culture is going. There's a system of truth that you need to build your life upon, that we need to build our lives upon. Stephen here, public opinion is uh, swayed against him, stirred up against him. You remember in the week that Jesus died, he comes into Jerusalem one day, and the crowds are screaming, you're the greatest thing we've ever seen. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Five days later, kill him, kill him. Why? What has he done? Kill him, crucify him, they said. Public opinion can easily turn one direction or the other. The only opinion that we truly need to be seeking the approval of is the Lord's. Well, Stephen is arrested. We see that there in verse 12. He's brought before the council. Again, that's the Sanhedrin. Seventy of the most uh, august individuals in society, highly trained, highly educated, highly powerful. It was because the Sanhedrin was stirred up against Jesus that ultimately, even though they didn't have the power to put Jesus to death, ultimately they were able to sway Pilate that he would. You know, this is an intimidating situation uh, that our friend uh, Stephen is brought before. And just like with the Lord, a sham trial is about to go on. And so Stephen is there, and as you see again, verse 13, false witnesses are brought in. They begin to accuse Stephen of blaspheming against God, blaspheming against Moses. A specific charge they bring there in verse 13 is that he said that Jesus is going to destroy the temple. Second one is that they're going to to change the customs of Moses. Essentially, the temple was the most significant place for the Jewish people, and the customs of Moses is, you know, all that they put into practice. Essentially, those two accusations add up to what they're accusing Stephen of doing is trying to get rid of Judaism, which is not what Stephen was doing and not what the early church was doing, but that's the argument that they're coming. They're taking some of his words, twisting them a bit, having them say something. It's the same thing that they had done with the Lord, you recall his trial and the way that they twisted his words and they were trying to get false witnesses to come and to agree and all these things. And so here is Stephen. He finds himself in a similar circumstance, which I, I think in some respects is good. If you ever find yourself acting in, in the same way and people treating you in the same way that they treated Jesus, you're probably where you need to be. But they're saying Stephen is teaching these types of things here. Now, Stephen, we know if we kind of work backward from what we see later on in the arguments that he's going to bring up, we know that Stephen taught clearly that Jesus was greater than Moses. Now, I suspect none of you have a problem with that. They had a problem with that. The Sanhedrin did. That was blasphemy against Moses. They, Stephen taught that Jesus was God. According to the Sanhedrin, that's blasphemy against God. Stephen taught that Jesus was greater than the temple. Now, for the first century Jews, for many of the first century Jews, the temple almost became an idol to the Jews in and of itself. And so anyone speaking out against it or that Jesus is greater than it, that's a violation in their opinion here. Stephen, we know and we'll see, he taught that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. So he's greater than the Old Testament law. That was a blasphemy in their opinion here. And so they bring him in, they begin to hurl all these threats against him I imagine, I picture them quite angry, getting angrier and angrier as this thing is going down. And what it tells us here in verse 15 is that Stephen remains unmoved. That's hard to do. 
And he, there he stands, and it says that his face was like the face of an angel. Here is a man on trial before the highest religious court that he could face that had the power, essentially, to see that he was put to death. And they're bringing all of these accusations against him, and in some cases lying against him or twisting his words, and Stephen remains unmoved. Again, it says that he remains there with the face of an angel. His face reflected the perfect peace and confidence of a person who knows and trusts that God is with them, even in that particular circumstance. His face, it's not filled with fear. It's not filled with terror because he knew that his life was in God's hands, whatever direction this thing should go. And so despite all of the opposition that is coming against him, his countenance, it radiates the presence of God and the love of God. And people took notice of that. They saw that. Now, how does Luke know all this? Almost certainly from the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul is sitting there. He and, and Luke became good friends, travel companions. Um, if you read through the book of Acts, you see that Luke was with him on many of those trips. And it's almost certainly that Paul said to him, I remember that day. Let me tell you about that day. You know, we were sitting there, and one thing that stands out to me was Stephen's face. And he was sitting there, and we were screaming at him and yelling at him, and things were coming from all over the place, uh, arguments against him. And man, he looked like an angel sitting there. That's how we know a lot of these things here and the impact that it had on the, the Apostle Paul. Despite all that came against him, he remained unmoved. I hope that can be said of me and us and the world in which we live and the culture in which we live. Because increasingly, things are coming against the Christian church, the evangelical church, the Bible-believing church. I hope that we would be a people that stand on truth but we remain in love, and we continue in love. Now, the trial goes on. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, now the high priest said, are these things so? These things. Have you been blaspheming against Moses in the temple? Have you been teaching that Jesus is going to tear this place down? Have you been trying to change the customs of Moses and replace them with the teachings of this Jesus of yours? The high priest says, are these things so? And Stephen doesn't say it in our Bible, but essentially Stephen says, I'm glad you asked. And he's going to go on and on and on in our passage of study today. He says, I'm glad you asked that particular question. And what we're going to discover about this man who a week ago was vacuuming, remember, is this guy knows his Bible. He's all over his Bible. He's quoting specific passages. He's telling narrative stories kind of in his own words here. This was a man that knew his Bible, how to divide rightly his Bible, how to teach his Bible. And he does that to this particular court. Uh, court. Again, a guy who was just recently waiting on tables. You know, I've heard folks say, well, I don't really need to know the Bible that much. I'm just the guy that vacuums around here. I'm just a guy that cleans the toilets or the guy who goes out and hands out water. I leave the Bible knowledge stuff to the pastor or the Bible knowledge stuff to the elders and things like that. Every one of us needs to be in the word of God. Every one of us needs to know the word of God and to be able to share and to teach and to process the circumstances that come against us through the word of God. 
Stephen doesn't wait. You know, one day maybe they'll let me be a preacher, and then I'm going to really start to study my Bible so I have something to say. He's doing that all along. And so he's ready when the opportunity presents it. It's, again, it speaks to this idea of being faithful in the little things and God rewarding him with greater things. Stephen faithfully prepared then so that he would be ready when the time came for him. Now, it goes on. Oh, I wanted to read to you. Excuse me. This is from 1 Peter chapter 3. How familiar this sounds. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Now notice, but do it with gentleness and respect. Don't do it looking for a fight. Don't do it looking for an argument. Don't do it looking to embarrass somebody else because you're so smart and you studied your books or whatever. Do it with gentleness and respect. Maybe another way we can say it in light of our passage, do it with the face of an angel. But be ready to give an answer. Stephen was ready. And so he says, in my words, I'm glad you asked. He, notice there in verse 2, he begins, brothers and fathers, my fellow Jews, he says. Those of you that are older than me, those of you that are my age, brothers and fathers. And then he's going to go on and he's going to give a general overview of Old Testament history. There's five sections, verses 2 through 8, in which he's going to go back and look at the life of Abraham. You've heard of him, no doubt. Verses 9 through 16 where he'll go back to the Genesis Joseph. Remember, Jesus' dad was Joseph, not that one. He's going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis with the patriarch Joseph. In verses 17 through 43, he's going to reference the life of Moses in a few different instances. And then in verses 44 through 50, he's going to talk about the history of the temple and the tabernacle that came before it. Until finally at the end, verses 51 to 53, he's going to bring it all together. He's going to sum up everything that he has taught and make application. And so he's ready. He's got this sermon. I don't know if he sat down somewhere before and he thought this all through or shared it with her. If I ever get the chance, this is what I'm going to share. But he's ready. And he comes forth with this 52 verse, 53 verse thing. Let's begin. Starting in verse 2, it says, Now Stephen said, one second. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And so he went. He went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which we are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. But he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, even though he had no children. God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they will come out and they will worship me in this place. Verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the 12 patriarchs, or where we get the 12 tribes. Now, as we're going to see in this survey of history, Stephen is going to address the two main accusations 
that are brought against him. One, that he's speaking out against the temple, and two, that he's speaking out against the law or the customs of Moses. In the first section that I just read, again, as I said, he begins with Abraham, and he reminds his listeners. Now, these are well-informed Jews. They know all of these things. There's not going to be any, I didn't know that, or that's not true. You know, he just lays out what they themselves already know, but he reminds them of the way in which God appeared to Abraham and called Abraham. Where did he do that? He did that while Abraham was 600 miles away in Mesopotamia, a polytheist in a polytheistic community, polytheistic family. God appeared to Abraham and called him to himself. That's where he begins. Notice he says, go out from this land and your kindred to a place that I will show you. And he tells them to do so by faith. Now, what Stephen does is he brings his listeners all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And in doing so, he addresses two important things with his audience. The first, again, is that God spoke, God appeared to Abraham, not when he was in the Holy Land, not when he was at the temple, not when he was somewhere inside of the land of Israel, but when he was in a foreign land that had foreign gods. So he begins, what Stephen does is he begins his defense by reminding his accusers that God still works, whether he is in the land of Israel, at the temple, or he's in some foreign land. The God of glory appeared to Abraham before he even came into the promised land. God is not limited to one geographical place. And they're accusing him. You want to destroy this temple. Probably because something that Stephen said to the effect of, look, God is at work all over this world. And we need to go into all of the world and bring that message. Oh, you don't like the temple? Is that what you're saying? This is where God dwells, they would say. And he reminds them, no, God called Abraham when he was 600 miles away from the promised land. Secondly, and I think subtly here, he doesn't come out like specifically and say it, but a point that Stephen goes on to make is that the great men and women of the faith, like Abraham, when they heard the voice of God speaking, they responded. Even if it meant challenging them to change where they were presently, or what their thinking was presently. When God called Abraham, he had idols all over his home, worshiping these other gods. And God called him to leave that land, leave his particular household. The great men and women of faith, when they hear God call, they go out. It says that there in verse 4, and then he went out. He went out in faith. Stephen's listeners were refusing to bend to this new message that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And in fact, they they sort of put their hands up and they were determined that they were going to stop that message. He uses Abraham as an example. Now we go on in verse 9, and he transitions from Abraham to another one of the patriarchs, Abraham's great-grandson, a guy by the name of Joseph. That starts in verse 9. It says, Now the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, they sold him into Egypt. That's his brothers, by the way. But God was with Joseph, and he rescued him out of all of his afflictions, and he gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made Joseph ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Verse 11, now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan, that's the promised land, and great affliction, and our fathers could not find food. 
But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent, and he summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and there he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Now this particular account, you can read, it's a little more lengthy than the first one. This is found in our Bibles between Genesis chapter 37 and Genesis chapter 50. Notice, though, in verse 9, a key thing. It talks about this man, Joseph, and it says, but God was with him. Now, where was God with Joseph? Well, he told us when he was in Egypt. His brothers had sold him. In, wait a minute. I thought God was only here at the temple. I thought God was only here in the promised land. You mean God appeared to somebody else? Outside of the promised land, that's the point that Stephen is getting to. Our God is bigger than just this building. He's telling these listeners here that are accusing um, Stephen of blaspheming against that particular building. Now Stephen also here introduces a second point that he's going to bring up in his next couple of examples as well. And that is the way in which the patriarchs or Israel, the way in which Israel rejected the one that God raised up for them. God had raised up Joseph to be a deliverer of his people. What was the response of the, his brothers? It was to beat him, throw him into a pit. They were going to kill him, but they decided, you know what, wait a minute, why, why kill him? Let's sell him. At least we get some money from him. And then when a caravan comes by, they sell their brother into slavery, never to be seen again, or at least they think, never to be seen again. This is the one that God raised up to be a deliverer over his people. One of the reasons why they didn't like Joseph is because God had revealed to Joseph through a number of different dreams this position he was going to have, this role that he was going to have in the lives of his family. Even his mom and his dad, the sun, the moon, the stars, are going to bow down before him. This is what he saw in his dream. And his brothers didn't like that. They had rejected the one that God had raised up. And that's going to be another theme that he develops in the rest of this uh, example here. You can go back and read. It's a wonderful read from chapter 37 of Genesis through chapter 50 of Genesis. But Stephen's not done. He's going to go on and give another example. I wonder if the high priest is thinking, oh, I'm sorry I asked, you know, because I got another one for you. This is in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and they multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Now, you should know, Joseph rose up, even though he was a, a former slave, he rose up in the nation of Egypt and he essentially became the number two man in the entire empire. All right, but eventually he died and others died. And it says there arose another king who didn't realize who Joseph was what he had done for the nation. It says that king dealt shrewdly, harshly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her son. 
And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. Now Moses, you know the name, rose up 400 years after Joseph. The children of Israel went down to Egypt, and there they were for about 400 years, initially essentially living uh, a life of peace, but gradually becoming sort of slaves of the nation. And their slavery got harsher and harsher and harsher as time went on. So much, but the nation continued to be blessed. It continued to prosper, so to speak, at least in the physical sense. They estimate that the population of Israel was somewhere between two and a half and four million people at this particular point in time. And so word began to filter to Pharaoh, and there's a whole lot of Jews. You know, if they decide to rise up against us, they could destroy us here. And as you saw in the passage, the Pharaoh said, well, here's what we're going to do. You know, we can take the ladies as they grow up, and so let's just kill all the male boys, uh, the babies, the males. Uh, let's just kill them, and eventually, you know, they won't have an army, but they'll still be able to work for us, and, and so on and so forth. That's the plan. It tells us here about this particular fellow, Moses, that he was beautiful in God's sight. He was precious in God's sight. There's a Jewish uh, tradition that Moses was like this beautiful baby and that, you know, like when he, he went down the street, like people were knocked on their backsides or whatever because, oh, he radiates beauty. I don't think so. Uh, like, that's cute, you know, whatever, but I don't think that's what it means here. I, I, well, I'm pretty confident. What it, when it talks about beautiful in God's sight, another word is precious in God's sight. The reason why is because God was raising up this little baby. Just like he raised up Joseph, to preserve the Jewish people, he was raising up this little baby, this fellow by the name of Moses. Moses is adopted into the household there uh, of Egypt. The Pharaoh's daughter raises him as his own, but God still has a plan here. Verse 23, now when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, other Jews. So he knew that he was Jewish, even though he was being raised by uh, the Pharaoh's daughter. And seeing one of them, verse 24, being wronged, he defended the oppressed man, and he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. And on the following day, Moses appeared to them as two of them were quarreling, and Moses tried to intervene. He tried to reconcile them. But the one said, men, or he said, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong one another? But the man that was wronging his neighbor pushed him aside, saying, who, notice these words, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You're going to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled, and he became an exile in the land of Midian, when he became, where he became the father of two sons. Notice that verse 27, that phrase in verse 27, where it says, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? That's the way Israel continually responded to those that were raised up to be leaders over them. Nobody's going to lead me. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Are you noticing the pattern? That's Israel's repeated history to reject the very one that God sent to deliver them, which is the exact Thing that they are doing with Jesus and now with Stephen who's preaching about Jesus you remember how John chapter 1 uh, begins 
it says that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That's the pattern that this nation has established for themselves. And it shouldn't surprise us, Stephen, these folks here. Nonetheless, verse 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, so Moses was in the palace for 40 years, assumed, I'm going I'm to lead a revolt. The Jews will follow me. God said, no, you're not ready. You need to go out into the desert. You need to learn how to truly lead. He gave him a bunch of sheep. He said, learn to lead those, lead those sheep in anonymity where nobody knows your name. And Moses learned there, and that was it. Moses is done. I'm never going to see people again. It's going to be my little family and these sheep, and I'm content here. And God appeared to him. Here we go. Verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Now, is Mount Sinai in Israel? It is not. It's outside of Israel. Here's that God can appear outside of the Holy Land and away from the temple. It says he appeared uh, in that wilderness uh, in a flame of fire in a bush. Verse 31, now when Moses saw that he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and looked away. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground, even though he's outside of Israel. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them, and I'm going to send you to do it. Doesn't say that exactly. It says, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, and said, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and a redeemer. By the, by the hand of an angel who appeared to him. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, notice those two points. God is not limited to a particular place, and Israel's history is a repeated history of rejecting the very ones that God raises up. He continues, verse 35, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. They may have rejected God's chosen one, but he wouldn't remain rejected. He'd be raised up again. They rejected Joseph. God raised up Joseph. They rejected Moses. God raised up Moses here. Stephen's not done. Imagine the high priest. Verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet some of your versions will have that capitalized. It speaks of the Messiah. Like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. They thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Now, you, you might need a little context. Exodus chapter 20, a little bit before that, Abraham goes up, excuse me, Moses goes up uh, to Mount Sinai, and there he receives uh, the Ten Commandments. He receives the law. He's there for 40 days, 40 nights. It talks about the top of the mountain being, you know, covered in thunder and lightning and clouds and all this stuff, and he's there 40 days. And the people down on the ground are beginning to think, I guess he died. You know, maybe a week up there or whatever. He's been up there 40 days. I don't know what's going on. So they say, they, they talk amongst themselves. What should we do? And they decide they're going to go back to Egypt where they can ask Pharaoh, can we be slaves again, please? 
you know, we're really sorry about everything and all the people that died and, and so on. Could we be slaves again here? But they can't just go back on their own. They need to have a God that will lead them. And so they turn to Aaron and they say, make us a God that can lead us back to Egypt. We'll say that he was the God that brought us out. He's the God that's bringing us back. And Aaron, I don't know what's going on. Aaron says, you bet. And he makes them a golden calf. And they're worshiping around the golden calf. They just got it. It just came in. You know, the cart brought it in. There it is tomorrow, this day. And they're dancing around it, doing all of what they're doing around it. And don't you know, don't you know, Moses comes down off the mountain. Just as they're doing all this stuff. Not when they're walking back. Just as the golden calf arrives. Verse 41 says that they made a calf. They offered sacrifice. They were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship. And then, as we all know, he sent them into exile for that sin. Or maybe we don't know, but God did. He sent them into exile. So notice, Israel didn't reject Moses one time. They rejected Moses multiple times. So they rejected Joseph. All right, well, they didn't know. They rejected Moses. Yeah, but that was 400 years later. It was new people. They didn't know. The Moses who led them out with miracles and all these things, they rejected again. Because Israel's repeated history would be to reject those very ones that God would raise up to deliver them. They would reject them. Again, who made you a judge and a ruler over us? And that rejection and that history is what the Sanhedrin is doing. And that's who Stephen is speaking to. This is what you're doing. You're missing it again. Who doesn't like Moses in, our, in their day? They all love Moses. Well, you didn't love him when he came the first time. They don't love this Jesus on his first coming. Stephen's not done. Verse 44. Our fathers, you're thinking, please, Stephen, bring it to a close. Our, he will. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses. Now here, he's going to transition to that fourth section, compare, talking about the temple and the tabernacle, which was so important to them. He said, our fathers had the tent of witness. Other places in the Bible, that's called the tabernacle. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. This is the book of Joshua. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked God to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, David's son, who built that house for him. That we call the temple. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? So again, Stephen's being charged with blaspheming, speaking against the temple. Now he goes and he begins to recount the history of the tabernacle, the history of the temple. And he quotes in verse uh, 48, he quotes, and 49, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66. He says, the most high does not dwell in the houses, in houses made by hands. Then look at verse 49. Heaven is my throne. This is a quote. The earth is my footstool. What kind of a house are you going to build for me? 
we might paraphrase that a little bit differently. You're going to build a house for me? I never asked you to build a house for me. The whole world is my dwelling place. How are you going to build a house for me? We might paraphrase Isaiah's words. So the temple, indeed, it was the special dwelling place of God among his people. But that never meant that God was confined to that place and that place alone. Even Solomon, the one who oversaw the building of the temple and prayed a prayer of dedication for the temple, this is what Solomon said. First Kings chapter 8, he says, Will God really dwell on earth? The answer, no. The heavens, even the highest of heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple? Now, which was considered one of the wonders of the world, but he said, how much less this temple that I have built? So the Sanhedrin is guilty of trying to confine God to a limited space, like the temple, or if we're gracious, the Holy Land. And this is where God is. They, they were essentially doing what all the other nations of the earth had done. We have our God who lives in this particular place. But of course, God is way too big to be limited to any temple that man could make. And Stephen is addressing that false understanding of the Jewish people. And they were mad at him for it. Stephen closes. Interesting. Who's on trial? Stephen. Stephen's going to turn it around and put them on trial, which I think is great. Because again, look, if Stephen is trying to save his life, he's going about it all the wrong way. He should have groveled, you're right, I'm sorry, I'll never say anything like that again. They misunderstood. That's what he should have done. Notice what he does here. He says, you stiff-necked people. He doesn't say those stiff-necked people from the book of Genesis and the times of you know, Solomon and David. He looks at them and he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Talk amongst yourselves. I'll wait. Which of the prophets did they not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Notice capital R, capital O. Um, that's the Messiah. It says, they, announced the, they killed the prophets who announced the coming of the Messiah. He says, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He says, again, you stiff-necked people, as your fathers did, so did you. You resist the Holy Spirit. Which of the prophets did you not persecute? And then ultimately, he speaks of them putting to death even the Messiah. And then he brings the long discourse to a close there by saying that. You have now, it's just one more example in the history of the Jewish people, you have now killed the righteous one. You've killed God's Messiah. You rejected him, then you betrayed him, and then you killed him. The same rebellious attitude that rejected Joseph, that rejected Moses, that rejected Moses again, that rejected all the prophets that came along on the scene, they're now exhibiting themselves. Again, quite a way for Stephen to end his defense before the highest court in the land that would have the power to put him to death. 
Again, if he's hoping to get off, he's going about it all of the wrong way. But the reality is Stephen is not interested first and foremost with preserving his life. Now, I, I don't think he has a death wish. I don't think he's hoping that they're going to kill him or something like that. But his first and foremost responsibility and care is not to save his life. It's to speak truth. And it's to confront these individuals that need to hear truth. And faithfully, remember that word? Faithful. In the little things and in the big things. Stephen faithfully challenges these men on their sin and then leaves it with them to respond to what it is he had to say. And you'll find out next week when we come back together again to see where the rest of this story goes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the faithful example that Stephen has uh, set for us. Lord, we thank you for his boldness. We thank you for his gentleness and his mercy, his respectfulness in the way that he unflinchingly, Lord, speaks before this group of people. May it be said of each of us. Lord, give us opportunities to serve you in word and in deed. Impress upon us the importance of being faithful in each one of those opportunities. Be glorified, not us, Lord, you be glorified with the service that we do. Again, whether it's in word or deed, so that you would be honored and you would be lifted up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.